Endless Hustle is presented by Routine. Routine helps you unlock optimal health and daily performance by leveraging AI, in-home testing, and the latest in-digital health tools to create a completely personalized micronutrient formula full of vitamins, minerals, and specialty compounds precisely dosed for your body based on your unique DNA, blood tests, and lifestyle habits. The process is simple, and thousands of members are choosing Routine and reporting results like more energy, better stress management, improved mental clarity, and more. Visit routine.co to join. I fought a good fight. I finished my football race. And after 18 years, it's time. Basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble, but I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Eventually, every ball would go flat, but that doesn't mean that your life will flatline. What will you do when the game is over? Hello, Endless Hustlers. We're back. Episode 86 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. I am your host, Arthur Cade. I've been saying that 86 times now. We're 86 years old. We're on the fast track to 100. I will actually want to know, guys, what should we do to celebrate 100 episodes? I'd love your ideas. So let us know. 100 episodes, how do we go out with a bang? Well, when I say go out, the show is going to keep going on. But that's like syndication territory. We need the syndication money. And based on the interviews we're getting on this episode, we're going to get the syndication money. We got a jam-packed episode here for you guys. First up, we're chatting with two of the best young stars in Hollywood, Stephen Amell and Alexander Ludwig. They are the stars of, you know, it's funny I say that, the stars of. The network is stars. They are the stars of Stars' brand new hit show, soon-to-be hit show, Heels. It is an, it's a love letter to wrestling. You guys are going to love this show. They play wrestlers. They take us inside the, the world of wrestling. And of course, heels is the, the, the slang term for the villain. This show is so fucking good, guys. I hate to curse, but it's so fucking good that I can't even tell you. So you guys are going to love this interview with Stephen Amell and Alexander Ludwig. These guys are awesome. Next up, we're chatting with one of the hottest names in sports right now. He's a documentarian the co-founder of Religion of Sports with Tom Brady, just won an Emmy with Tom, Gotham Chopra. His father is, of course, Deepak Chopra, but Gotham has really forged his own path in becoming just a brilliant mind in the world of sports. He was the guy behind Muse, Kobe Bryant's documentary, behind Iverson, Allen Iverson's documentary. Gotham Chopra is making incredible waves with religion of sports. And by the way, they have a new podcast called Lost in Sports. It's hosted by sports journalist Ben Baskin. The show is looking at some of the coolest topics in sports right now. The N1 mixtapes, Evander Holyfield's ear bite when Tyson bit his ear off, the NCAA video football game franchise, and more. And he's got people like Stephen Curry, Joe and Anthony Russo, Avengers directors, Listen to Lost in Sports. It's on Religion of Sports. Great new podcast. And then we're finishing up with, and I was totally geeking out over this guy, a man who has become synonymous with the Oscars, a man who has become synonymous with the the word cool in Hollywood, a man who has become one of the greatest culinary icons in the history of food, Wolfgang Puck. He has a brand new documentary out. It's called Wolfgang on Disney+. Plus. It tells his just incredible life story. And coming from Europe, an abusive childhood, to becoming one of the most famous chefs of all time. Shit doesn't happen overnight like that, guys. And this is a real feel-good story, an inspirational story about 
how when you work hard, do the right things and have a positive attitude, you can accomplish anything you want in life. And in fact, becoming one of the most famous chefs in the world is just one of the checks that he has on his checklist because he's doing a whole bunch of other stuff and he really talks about it in this documentary and this interview. So I'll stop boring you. Hopefully I haven't bored you too much, but we got a great episode ahead. Let's kick it off. Heel stars, Stephen Amell and Alexander Ludwig. I'm Arthur Cade, Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. All right, Stephen Alexander. First of all, congrats. Awesome show. I'm a wrestling fan. So here's the big question. You guys have, are both great athletes. I love Vikings. I love Arrow. You do some crazy shit on those shows. How much respect do you have for the professionals after what you just had to do for this show? Tremendous. It's crazy, man. I mean, I mean the, the, you know, these guys are, I, I think about how how wrecked I'd be after a day of shooting where we're taking everything, we're breaking it up and we're, we're doing these little, like little bursts, right? Cause you know, we're, we're not, we're not filming it. Like you film a wrestling pay-per-view. We're getting in close, we're making it much more stylized, makes us look cooler, um, you know, hide some of our deficiencies. But I think about how wrecked I'd be. These guys, you know, uh, getting to know Cody Rhodes, he, he, he talked about the loop that you go on with WWE, which is get to a city, you might do a show on Friday night, but you do a show on Saturday night, go to the next city, you do a show on Sunday night, you go to the next city, you do a TV taping on Monday and a TV taping on Tuesday, you get home on Wednesday, you hit the fucking road again on Friday. And you know, you're, you're sleeping in hotel beds, you're in rental cars, you're on planes, you're never getting a chance to heal. The only time that you get vacation is if you get hurt and you just to think what these guys put themselves through, it's just outrageous, it's outrageous. Alexander, it sounds like the season of Vikings right there. Everything Stephen just described. Pretty much all the shit you guys have to go through. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But let me just say that speaking from somebody who, who wasn't super informed about the wrestling world and having done it now or a version of it uh, for months, um, man, there's nothing quite like it. The amount of athleticism that goes into this sport is tremendous and Man, you ha we had to build our bodies and our minds up to a place where it could kind of take that kind of abuse for maybe five minutes. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like for 40 minutes. Um, so, I mean, I, I have the utmost respect. And we just wanted to make sure that the wrestling com community knew that we had put in the work. Um, so we took it really seriously and we trained our asses off. So I think about it as an interviewer. I enjoy this process so much more when I get to chat to people that I'm just an enormous fan of, whether it's actors, athletes, billionaires, whatever. I'm guessing for an actor, when you get to make a project of something that you're a fan of, rather than let's just call it like some drama, but you get to do shit about wrestling, like something really cool. How does that increase the enjoyment level for what you guys get to do? Well, I mean, the thing that I love most about acting is that you know, it, 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 it never, it never feels like work. You know, it doesn't mean you're not tired at the end of the day. It doesn't mean that it's not, that it can't be, that it can't be grueling or that it's not occasionally monotonous or, you know, the whole like hurry up and wait, uh, uh, thing that you always hear. But when you get to merge something that you're passionate about with another thing that you're passionate about, it's, it's just like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's like, it's like an, it's like an orgy of personal fulfillment. It's just fantastic.
It needs a t-shirt, an orgy of personal fulfillment. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's something that I really grew to love. You know, wrestling is something that I've really grown to love and, and appreciate. And it's, it's just like any form of escapism or art, you know, it's there to inspire and it's this incredible, colorful world. And um, the one thing I would say about this show that really resonated with me was when I first read the scripts, like, even though I didn't know a lot about wrestling, I love this show. So I, I believe that if, it, if done right, we're going to have a great audience. But I wanted the wrestling fans to know just we're, you know, we're shining a, a light and we're bringing you into the ring like it's never happened before and showing you the grind. Um, and that's the stories that Adam Copeland and Dwayne Johnson would always tell me when I was, you know, what it was like behind the scenes. Uh, and finally, you get to experience that um, and further experience it through these really, really dynamic characters. Steven, I know you're a big hockey fan. I'm also a big hockey fan. You're a Toronto guy. You grew up loving the Leafs. Speaking of heels, who is your greatest and favorite NHL heel of all time and why? Ooh. Um, well, I did grow up liking the Leafs, but we kind of divorced. And I, I got season tickets to the Kings when I moved to LA. I'd say that the greatest heel... Um, you know, growing up, it might have been Jeremy Roenick. People, I hated Jeremy Roenick. But, um, you know, a guy that I watched that you can recognize when he's on your team, you love him. When he's on another team, you hate him. And uh, I loved Matt Green on the Kings. He's a defenseman. And in both of their runs to the Cup in 2012 and 2014, uh, I just watched the, the hatred that he would evoke from the opposing fan base. And the way that he just how rough he was and, and the cheap shots that he'd get in. And I'd watch him, I'd watch him try to blade guys in the neck. Right. And, and I just think to myself, man, I'm glad this guy's on my team. And, and frankly, if, if I ever meet him, I'm going to be very deferential because he scares the shit out of me. Isn't it great to be a heel though, by the way, isn't there, I mean, it's cool to be the good guy, but there's gotta be something freaking great about being the heel in anything you do it's a transformative it's a transformative experience you know normally when you want to just walk up to someone and tell them they're stupid you can't do it you can do it as a heel and it's just i don't know it's it's like it's all it's just all those things that 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 societal norms don't allow because they're not they're not acceptable you get to do as a heel in the ring um and no one can say anything they can boo but who gives a shit? So Alexander and Steven, one of the main reasons that I started this show was to talk to successful people across all genres about the principles and mentality that help make them successful. So my question to both of you, and I'll start with you, Alexander, what are some of the things you incorporate in your life, the, the, the habits that help you elevate in your craft? Man, first off, I gotta, gotta start watching your show because it sounds freaking amazing. Um, I love that. It, you get, you know, Stephen and I were talking about this the other day, like in our line of work, like, you know, it's such a gift to just be working, to let, let alone be working on something you're proud of. And to get to that level and that point, it just takes persistence. And, but, but persistence comes from loving what you do because, and Steve Jobs says this too, about Apple, he's like, you know, if you love, if you really truly love something um, at this point in our careers, any sane person would have quit. You know, you hear, you hear a thousand no's and then you're sent to the middle of nowhere where you know nobody, you know, and, and 
that's your life. It's, it can be lonely at times and it can be this, but you sacrifice all of it so that you can do something you love. And I think that the reason we're so passionate about a show like Heels is because it's, it's an amalgamation of, of, of all this time and effort. And suddenly, you know, once again, we're on a show that we are so proud to be a part of, and that's so fulfilling, but it really is persistence. And for me, it's always been a, a thing for myself. It's just going, you cast all these lines out there and see which one bites. But at the end of the day, if you trust it's going to happen, just never how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen, you're going to be okay. But don't forget to be grateful because gratitude transcends everything. At the end of the day, when you are sick, like what is the one thing you want in this world more than anything? Just to be healthy. Yeah. And remember that. Why is it that suddenly when we have everything, we want more? You know, I just think that that to me is I just try to, and it's a practice just to remind myself how freaking lucky we are to just be here. Stephen, how do you continue to elevate? I think about what would make my kid proud of me. I think about just what would make my wife and my kid and my friends and my family proud of me, you know, uh, be it, be it in acting, be it in philanthropy. Um, I'm not, I'm not doing it for the adoration of, for the adoration of others, but I want, I want, I want my, I want my kid to be proud that I'm her dad and my wife to be proud that, you know, I'm her partner outside of that. Everyone else is like, it's like Jack says in the first episode, it's, or sort of like he says to paraphrase, like outside of that, nobody's else opinion matters. And, and, you know, you know, know your audience, know, know, know why you're doing what you do and who you're doing it for and put an honest effort into it and, and let the chips fall where they may. Gentlemen, congrats on the show. I hope everybody watches it. I love the preview episodes I saw. Congrats. And it's been a pleasure to chat with both of you. Thanks, man. Doug, the questions. That was cool. Thanks, brother. Take care, guys. All right, folks, that was, of course, Stephen Amell and Alexander Ludwig. Make sure to check out the premiere of Stars' brand new show, Heels. Fantastic new show, August 15th on Stars, a true love letter to wrestling. Just fantastic show. I can't, I can't speak of it highly enough. They let me screen the first few episodes. I absolutely loved it, and I think you will too. Our next guest is a man who has taken the sports world by storm. He is the co-founder of Religion of Sports with Tom Brady and Michael Strahan. I just was thinking about it. I'm like literally in the intro as I was saying this, neglected to mention, oh, by the way, one of the greatest defensive ends is also a founder on this. So it's Michael Strahan and Tom Brady. And they produce so many incredible programs. They've got Simone versus herself talking with Simone Biles on Facebook Watch this summer. Man in the Arena on ESPN Plus later this year. Their newest, newest project is called Lost in Sports. It's a podcast on religion of sports. As I'd mentioned earlier, hosted by sports journalist Ben Baskin, investigating some cool topics. Gotham is just the man. You guys are going to love this interview. I absolutely fell in love with this guy and at some point would love to collaborate. Listen to me, Gotham. I'm like literally putting, putting my job resume out there for you. But here you go, Gotham Chopra. All right, it's a fun day on The Endless Hustle today as I'm joined by new Emmy nominee because I just saw Tom Brady congratulating you on social media, so congrats on that. Acclaimed filmmaker, a guy who gets to work with all my idols. I have to interview him, he gets to work with him. 
the one and only Gotham Chopra. Congratulations on the Emmy nomination. Congratulations on Lost in Sports. Things are good, right? Things are very good. Yes, we're blessed. Um, yeah, no, thank you for all that. It's been quite a week and uh, it's a lot of fun. All right, so let's start with Lost in Sports because essentially what you're doing is you're investigating the craziest mysteries and craziest happenings in sports. Evander Holyfield's ear, the and one mixtapes, which I freaking love that because I grew up on those. Like, how do you dig into these stories? Walk me through the process. You know, we, the name of the company is Religion of Sports. And I've always just been, as much of a sports fan I am, I'm a believer in that sports are mythic. Sports are a language. And so Lost in Sports is sort of like examining and uncovering the mythology of sports, right? Um, ben Baskin, our host, he's um, he's like the Indiana Jones, like going going on these expeditions um, and and you know archaeologically digging up and excavating these incredible stories. Like you said, Lost in Sports, which came out today. Um, you know, it's just it's like one of those things. I was like, oh yeah, like whatever happened. That's kind of like the idea. It's like, oh yeah, I remember that. You know, we we did the first one was on um, this this lost sort of film that the Cleveland Browns made called Masters of the Gridiron. And Cleveland Brown fans are like, oh yeah, like, oh, that was so crazy. Whatever happened to it? And so like Ben goes on these journeys basically to uncover and answer that that question. And it's been a lot of fun. And like, I was just like uh, on N1, you know, it's been so much fun because we've been able to go work with Steph Curry a few years ago. And I remembered Steph talked about N1 and he was like one of those guys like, oh, yeah, like whatever happened. And I'm like, we're doing a podcast on it. Steph, would you be on it? He was like, of course, I totally be on that because I love that stuff. So he did it. I just sent it to him. He just acknowledged like, I'm going to listen to this tonight and I'm going to post on it and stuff like that. So, you know, it's just a lot of fun, which is like, that's when you know you're doing something right. So I was obviously just geeking out over the N1 mixtape. So I played high school and college basketball and I actually played in high school with Kobe Bryant, who I know you developed a friendship with and obviously didn't use, which was amazing. Great job with that. But I grew up on those N1 mixtapes and like the professor, like he was cooler than like any of the NBA players. Like the professor was the baddest ass on the planet. <laughs> and so to be able to relive that, that's so cool, man. I love that you guys are investigating that. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun. I mean, I'd say, you know, Ben's great. And they come from a very genuine place, like, you know, like this fascination. I'm like another, uh, I'm going to give away like one of my ideas here, but like, you know, I've always been fascinated by, because now I live in LA, when Kirk Gibson hit, you know, the sort of walk off run. Yeah. Like I've been around so many people like, oh, you know, like I know the guy who has that ball. Nobody has that ball or maybe but like the legend that God created out of who caught that ball and what that ball meant and everything. And so again, you go back to sports, it's like there's these artifacts, there's these things that, you know, relics basically, if we're using the religion of sports language that means something, it's just another baseball, right? But like that baseball, what it means to this city, to that fan base, et cetera, is really cool. And so th that's sort of the idea always behind religion of sports. Um, and of course this podcast is to really like deconstruct and decode that. So I want to walk you back to 2015. You launched Religion of Sports with two of the biggest names in sports and entertainment, Tom Brady and Michael Strahan. How does that begin? 
what what does that meeting look like? Are you in a room with Brady on your left, Strahan on your right, shitting your pants? Like, what's happening here? Like, what's going on? <laughs> Far more of a hustle than that. Um, you know, look, I again, I, I grew up as a huge fan. I grew up in Boston, so I'm a big, like, Boston sports fan. Um, I'm lamenting the the loss of the, the Bruins losing last night um, in the Stanley Cup playoffs. But, um, you know, I've just always believed like sports are this language. Sports are a thing. I grew up around it. So and just like the passion for it. And so I had sort of become friendly with both of them independently. You know, Michael is someone who's, you know, retired, iconic Hall of Famer, but also in the world of broadcasting and media. So I kind of originally religion of sports started out as a show like not unlike Boston sports, what we just talked about is like, I want to do a show that uncovers why people love sports so much and what they mean. And so Michael, who's sort of in broadcasting was like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to be a part of that. So it's like, okay, check, <laughs> like go, you know, Tom, like, hey, so I'm thinking about doing this thing. And, you know, I, I had like a sizzle reel that we had created that I showed Tom because, you know, I mean, the guy's like still playing football. But at the time he was still playing. He's like, okay, I, I get it. I mean, I, I love the idea. I live this. I mean, I'm still playing. I'm at the epicenter. I mean, I joke all the time. You know, I've lived it as a fan, as a, as a believer. You know, Tom's lived it as a demigod. Yep. You know, he's sitting at the epicenter of the faith. And so, again, it was it was more of a trust thing. It wasn't like some business plan I put in front of anyone. It was like, hey, I want to do this. I'm passionate about it. And those guys were both like, yeah, I get it. I want to support it. Tell me how I can be helpful. So started as a show. And then over time, it morphed into like, hey, I think we can do other stuff. Because it's really an idea more than anything. Sports as a religion. And both of them are just, like I said, they're, they're believers. And so that's kind of how it started. And then, of course, it evolved and um, has really like, you know, now become so many different things. You'd mentioned the Bruins. I actually also host the show for the NHL. And that show is I talk to celebrities and tastemakers about hockey. So I had no idea. I knew you were a Boston guy, but oh my God, that's okay. Tell me about the, your Bruins memories and growing up a Bruins fan. I got to hear all this. I'm just, you know, I grew up in Boston and like as much as like the Celtics, amazing, especially in the 80s, you know, the Red Sox first, the Patriots and their incredible like now, you know, 20 years run, but like they weren't always like that. But the Bruins, I think, are like the most sort of blue collar Boston team there is. And, you know, I grew up at a time like they weren't really that they were good. They were really good, but they weren't like Stanley Cup good, you know, like the Montreal Canadiens, the rivalry, like that was essentially our reoccurring Stanley Cup. And so I grew up in an era of Cam Neely and, you know, Craig Janney. And like, I went to a high school that was like, hockey was the thing. I didn't play, but um, Belmont Hill sent players on through, you know, to, to the NHL, et cetera. So it was like a hockey culture that I grew up around and old garden and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, I just, I fell in love with it. And to this day, you know, I, I, live and die as of like yesterday like you know like you could kind of see it coming with the islanders i mean they're having a special season they've been on a run but like still like you always i mean i as much of a fan i am of pretty much every sport there's nothing like the stanley cup playoffs i mean it's just like so it's it's kind of like it's that day after where you're kind of lamenting you know there's a silver lining because it's like i also actually feel like oh i can like 
you know, my, I've been living the last couple of weeks by like, oh, like I got, especially on the West Coast, you're like, oh, game's starting at four o'clock. I got to wrap this up. Um, but so now I can get on with my life. But still, I mean, it was a good team this year. It's just, I kind of had a feeling like it was going to happen to the Islanders. And if not, like the, the rate, the um, Tampa has been so good now for the last few years that it's like, I wasn't very confident going into that series. Had we even your father is one of the most famous people on the planet please tell me he's a hockey fan as well does Deepak love hockey and how do we get him into hockey if not (laughs) nothing about I mean I don't even know if I've ever had a you know hockey conversation with him in general he knows nothing about sports you know like he just although I will say sort of what's interesting now is like so much of the world of sports uh, athletes are tapping into like what he's been talking about human potential obviously performance mindfulness is a big topic amongst athletes the zone flow state all of these things so they're sort of merging but like no he's he's never he's one of those people like when i was growing up it was just like why because you know i would like lose some canadians and i would go into like a depression for like two weeks he's like oh my like why do you care so much about this thing which i've I've always actually said is like the origin of religion of sports, which is like, you know, it's an answer to that question. Like, yeah, no, I, I will never, you know, nobody on the Bruins, Boston Bruins knows me, but like, you know, we live and die by this thing. And why do I care so much? Here, watch this. This will explain it. So that's sort of been the idea. So here's a million dollar question. You've obviously done award-winning projects around basketball players and other athletes. Which hockey player would you make a doc about? Well, you know, I, I was very passively involved because um, some friends of mine in Boston were, were working on it and came out actually last year on Zidane Chara. You know, he's a legend and amazing and a great human being. So that, um, you know, I've been trying to like, we have this other series. Um, I don't even know if I'm allowed to talk about this, but you know, Greatness Code, which won the Emmy. And, um, you know, we're into a second season and I definitely have a hockey player like high on my list for, you know, that we're targeting, um, trying to trying to get um, for it. So I don't know. I mean, you know, hockey's a, it's a tough sport when it comes to the, look, I love it. I watch all the games, et cetera. But it's it's been hard to crack into like the mainstream. Right. And that's I mean, amazing players. Right. Like Sidney Crosby, Alex Ovechkin. I mean, you know, there's there's a handful of Bruins that I I would sort of put in that category, um, Pasternak, et cetera. But it's just like getting to the mainstream. And that's partly what makes hockey great. It's like it's not selling itself. It's for the purists. It's for the people who love it. And so I also don't want to, like, sabotage that. Oh, I would love to see you make a film about Ray Bork. I would love All a right. Ray Bork film. Yep. All right. So I have a signed puck on my... Um, from Bobby or of course on my desk um, at the office so so cool all right I want to talk to you about Brady because he's obviously aging in reverse he's become you know arguably the most marketable athlete on the planet at this point but his social media is such fire and I'm so fascinated by this how great in your opinion is Tom Brady's social media I mean, look, like he's been great on the field, largely. I mean, he's amazing, et cetera, but it's also because of his teammates. He's got some great guys working with him on his social media and I think have really helped, you know, curate his voice. And I mean, it's very authentic. Like those are his ideas. A lot of them, you know, are like him literally, you know, typing out the captions and stuff like that. 
but yeah, I think it's just like the the handcuffs have come off, and that's not casting dispersions on you know my favorite team growing up, the Patriots. But it's just like he's at a different stage of his life right now, and I think he's just he's having a lot of fun, and you can feel it. And that's you know what makes social media work is authenticity, and so he's you know he's he's really like leaned into it, enjoying it, and has some great people around him. I think have a lot of fun. And by the way, it's made him so much more likable and endeared him to a whole new generation of fans. It's incredible because there's, I, I, I was thinking about this knowing I was interviewing you today. I don't know that there's ever been an athlete that has hit multiple generations and had such a switch from a guy that almost everybody disliked because of his success to now he's so beloved because of his success and I don't know if it's the team switch that caused it, but he really has become so beloved at this point. Look, he's also, I mean, unlike, I can't even think of anybody who's going, did I see him like post something yesterday about year 22? It's like, oh my God, <laughs> like, you know? So he's, he's you know, and he talks about it a lot, you know, we're working on something new. And he says, you know, I went from like, my teammates were my brothers to like, I was kind of a father figure to like, I think I'm kind of a grandfather figure to some of these guys who are coming into the league. And so he, he touches different generations. I think, you know, he's relatable, obviously in some ways to his teammates as an athlete. He's also a dad now, you know, and social media, he talks a lot about that. He posts a lot about that, you know? Um, so yeah, I think he's just, he's, he's relatable. It's interesting too, because like, Look, I think so much of our success on our series going back a couple of years ago, Tom versus time was actually the opposite, right? Like he wasn't on social media. There was a level of scarcity around him that suddenly like he's making a smoothie in his kitchen. And it was like, holy, you know, crap, like this is so amazing. And like, you know, like really not, but you know, like it was just like this level of access and, you know, I think intimacy um now like you wouldn't be able to do that frankly right now because now it's like so familiar and you feel i mean it's it's the you know it is the phenomena of social media um so you know it's he's one of those rare athletes that i think like operates on two he's got a jordan-esque like you know halo around him his accomplishments etc cetera, etc cetera, celebrity and fame but he's also now got this almost like you know um groundedness um through his social yep. media uh so he, you know that's pretty unique i think that's out there you'd mentioned father and i want to talk to you about your father because growing up your father again i'd mentioned incredibly famous incredibly influential as you're growing up do you have any understanding of your father's fame and influence or is he just dad to you well, you know, my my dad's fame really came um, in the early 90s, I would say, early to mid 90s. So I was a teenager, you know, I was, um, and I, so I, you know, and I was very familiar because my dad wasn't always, you know, now what he's known for, like his, his professional, I guess, um, transformation was really the function of a personal transformation. You know, he was somebody who, lived a very toxic lifestyle prior to like his, it was actually late 80s. The fame came in the 90s, um, but like his transformation started to happen in the 80s. And so, yeah, I, I remember like those days. I remember before, I remember during, and I remember after. 
And I think it the timing actually was good for me because I had I had left for college, I think like when it really started to explode, he was like on the Oprah Winfrey show. And all of a sudden, like, I think that really like shined a spotlight on him. Um, but I, you know, I, I think for me, it was always like the fame was a, a sort of function of, of something deeper. And that's the part I remember. And, and I think, you know, I've, I've sort of like have a level of uh, uh, respect is weird. Um, but, you know, it, it still does like, I think probably now, like, oh yeah, he's this way to the world. And then, you know, especially now, look, he's a grandfather. I have kids, you know, and I see, we see him as, as that, you know? So there's that sort of dichotomy. So when you start in the business, does your last name open up any doors or is it a pure hustle? And how do you begin to break in with these guys? I mean, the access you have is unprecedented. How does it begin for you? How do you open those doors? Well, you know, I mean, yes, for sure. Like, and but before I started getting into sports, you mentioned Kobe. I'd say Kobe was like the first, you know, prominent um, or athlete of that level that I ever worked with. That was like later into my career. Um, it started as a reporter. I worked for a company called Channel One. And yeah, I think I got hired pretty much because of my last name. I mean, I'm not, you know, like I don't try to um, uh, sort of uh, ignore that. But, you know, I say like I'm one of those people like, OK, I got in because of that. Now I got to prove myself and I almost like I have to separate myself from that. Um, you know, so my first when I started working at Channel One, where I think there was like this, oh, like your Deepak Chopra son. So maybe we're going to like do this sort of more new agey spiritual thing. And I was like, no, I actually want to go cover war zones. So I, I traveled for years to Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Chechnya, Colombia, um, like all these crazy places, um, the Middle East, and, and really covered like violence and war. Because for me, that was a way of like proving myself and, and differentiating myself. Um, so I think one, I gained a lot of experience. I sort of obviously a lot of skill set in terms of filmmaking and storytelling. But then coming back around to like this stuff, I mean, yeah, I do think it it helps like people. I mean, going back to Kobe and and others who are I don't know that they were fans of my dad, but they were familiar or they could, you know, Google it and figure it out. And I think there was a level of like, oh, you've grown up around this type of fame. You've been around not just your dad, but then your Elizabeth Taylor and Michael Jackson and like all these people that he was, you know, Michael was in particular. I remember Kobe saying he's like, man, that guy could trust you, I can trust you. And so like, and then that's always been like, well, if Kobe can trust you, like then Tom's like, oh yeah, man, I can trust you. And if Tom can trust you, Steph Curry can trust you and so on and so forth, so. Yeah, it's funny the Kobe stuff because knowing him and remembering him from high school, and I always have this great Kobe story that we played in a summer league together and I was just shooting the shit out of the ball in a game, just crushing it and we ended up beating his team in a summer league game. So I came up afterwards and I go, great game. And his response was, you need to raise your shot release because you're going to get blocked at the next level. And I'm literally like, this guy didn't say great game back. <laughs> his mind was always focused on improvement and the next steps. And then to see what he was able to build through his career, it really translated. And then I just had Tim Grover, his longtime trainer on the show, who also trained Michael Jordan, and then went to Kobe. And when I saw Muse, that was really the first time I feel like 
that we got to see a different Kobe, obviously the family Kobe. You gained an access to him that we had never really seen that side of him. Obviously, we got to see the ruthlessness and the rehab and all that stuff. But also, we got to see the softer, curious side. And it was nice to see people discover that Kobe wasn't just a stone-cold assassin all the time. Yeah, I mean, look, and those things are a function of a relationship and where you end up in, you know, day with Kobe. I think it went on for several years um, in terms of like the project and filming and the relationship, but it's not where you start on day one. It just isn't, you know, it's like, and I always joke, like you always have those early conversations in these projects. And it's usually with like Kobe and Vanessa, Tom and Giselle, Steph and Aisha, <laughs> you know, it's like, or here's our boundaries. And, but you get to a point at the end where it's like, you know, you're getting texts from Aisha or, um, you know, Giselle and it's like, hey, you know, kids graduation is on Monday. And like, I think we're gonna have a party. You should come, it'd be really fun. We should capture some of that. Um, and so it's, you know, I think that's kind of where you want to get. And that, by the way, that's like not then, oh great, we can stick it in the documentary and like show it to the world. I mean, some, a lot of what you film doesn't end up, you know, on screen. Um, it's it's like anything it's memories like you want to like be able to capture that and so that's you know it's it's a relationship and you got to invest in them and be patient and you know so and kobe that was you know special for sure how difficult is it because when you become friends with the subjects i'm sure you want to protect them you don't want to do anything to tarnish their image i'm sure there's moments that are being recorded that aren't the most flattering but then on the other hand, you want to really do the project justice. How do you walk that fine line to make sure that the project really reflects what you want it to reflect while not violating your friendship? Yeah, well, again, like I, one, I, I mean, while I was a reporter in my, you know, when I started out, like these are not, I'm not a reporter. I'm a storyteller. I'm a filmmaker. I'm a collaborator. So, you know, these things take time because relationships take time. And you build a trust and and you know i've been fortunate also to work with like really smart people kobe you know being as smart as anyone i've worked with and and him understanding oh if if you want this to be good if then there it has to be honest like you know it has to be real it, you have to go to those places you have to be vulnerable like look we all have the same goal which is to create something really great and memorable and iconic to do that it can't be just like some puff piece can't be some vanity piece and I think Kobe in particular really understood that um and so giving the access talking about the things in his life you know the dark places that he's been and the things he regrets etc um was really important and so but you know and I mean Kobe's like I remember we'd be working he's like oh man like, so I gotta be like 100% honest and we're like yeah 80 to 85 percent honest like you know we got boundaries your dad like you know so Sort of thing. I mean, we joked about that, but look, it's a it's a thing. You got to figure it out together. Like, okay, like this needs to be addressed. How are we going to do it? And in his case, like, there's like lots of legal issues and stuff like that. Also, so it's not simply like, oh, we're just going to figure it out together. You know, um, like you know, so it's a process. You know, and and you make choices, and and then you make chase choices, and some of them aren't, you know, in hindsight, like the best choices. Um, and so, you know. That's, it's just all part of how the sausage gets made. You have a project about to come out later this summer with Simone Biles, who of all the athletes we've talked about, yeah. Simone might end up going down as the most accomplished of them all. And that says a lot when Tom Brady's in your company. Working with Simone Biles, 
you've got to tell me about that. I've interviewed her many times. First of all, it always strikes me how tiny she is. And to be able to see athletically what she's able to do, it's just mind blowing. But as you worked with her, what did you learn about her and get to see that we're going to discover through this new project? Yeah, I, I always say, you know, she's the goatiest of the goats I've ever worked with. I mean, she's a superhero. She literally is a superhero. And with all due respect to Tom and Steph and Kobe and everything, I've never seen anyone. It's it's interesting that you talked about her size because the only person I feel like I've been around worked and I, I don't really know him that well, but I've worked a little bit with him is LeBron because physically you're like, like are we the same species when you're around him? She's kind of the same thing, but like, you know, they were like um, diametrically different in terms of size, but what she can do, like what she does on the vault and the beam and the floor and all that sort of stuff is like unbelievable. Um, and then, you know, going back to superheroes, like her story, like when you, you know, I, I'm familiar, obviously, like with, you know, some of the, the trauma, like as a survivor, she's been through, like through the Larry Nassar scandal and stuff like that. I don't think I knew really about her upbringing in the foster care system and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's like, if you wrote this thing, you'd be like, oh yeah, you're like writing, you know, Superman or whatever. Like, it's like a fictional thing, but it's like, oh no, it's real. <laughs> like it is crazy real what she has overcome and what she's sort of carrying with her when she gets out onto that stage. Um, so I think I was just blown away, frankly, about, you know, and, and also her willingness to go there, having just talked about like, okay, you got to figure out all these things and how are you going to talk about it? And what's the right amount? Simone's like sort of processing it in real time. She's, she's very candid about that. She's, you know, she talks about her mental health and her mental health struggles and her mental health treatment. And so she just like lays it out there. Like, you know, there's no like discussion of like how we're going to do this. It's just like, boom, it's right there. And um, I've been fortunate on that one in particular to like just have this incredible team of women, you know, and that was purposeful, like just um, a team of, you know, an amazing cinematographer and Jessica Young. Um, Katie Walsh, this producer I'm working with, who, you know, are women who can make Simone feel comfortable with that vulnerability and stuff like that and really be with her. You know, part of like what I've been able to do through the years with Kobe and Steph and Tom, et cetera, is like have that intimacy. I'm like in their houses, in their cars, like in the locker room, things that I couldn't and probably shouldn't do with Simone considering, I mean, she's a young woman, but also that she's, you know, been through all this trauma. So I was really lucky to have this team that could build that type of intimacy with her um, and make her comfortable. And then, like I said, she just laid it all out there. And so I would say this series, Simone versus Herself, is as good as anything we've ever produced. I mean, I, I say that probably sounds arrogant, but like um, just because of, frankly, who she is. You'd mentioned Steph multiple times. And I, I, as a Philly boy, I grew up during the era of Allen Iverson. Yeah. And there was really nobody cooler. Like there just wasn't. Yeah. You could show up at a TGIF Fridays on City Avenue. He'd be there as Bentley would be there beating chicken fingers inside. I mean, he was just, he was this enigma, but the most beloved athlete probably an influential of a generation of, of, of for a sport. Curry is that guy now when you see what he's done for the game and also how players emulate him, it's fascinating. 
Do you think Steph has an understanding of his influence on this generation of NBA players? Uh, look, I think that Steph is still in it. It's a, I have an interesting anecdote. Like when I was working with him a couple years ago, you know, I'm a basketball junkie, right? Like it sounds like you are. And so we were talking about like top five players of all time and stuff like that. Uh, top 10 and you know Steph was going through it and he was like thinking a lot about it and uh, he put LeBron in it and he didn't put himself in it and I was like so hey so where do you belong in this you know Bill Russell and and MJ of course and LeBron and Steph was like I don't know (laughs) I don't I I can't think about that like you know I don't think about that while I'm in it um so I think he would have a hard time. I think he's very aware. I mean, I think he takes very seriously the role model aspect. He knows how popular he is, especially with young, with kids and stuff like that. And I'm not even sure in a basketball sense, in just in terms of like healthy living and you know being a role model, being a good person, all that stuff. I think in that way he's, but I don't know. Like, but I'm not sure Alan Iverson did at the time too. Like that's the point. It's like they're just being who they are. And, um, you know, like that, there's not much of an agenda really behind it. I think over time, Steph, especially, you know, because he's really smart and he's really successful, he'll embrace that role, you know. But I think he's still sort of in it. He still wants to beat everybody. <laughs> like, you know, so it's, it's hard for him to like, you know, when you hear things like John Morant saying, I grew up like watching Steph Curry and I idolized him. Steph's like, cool, but I got to play him next week. <laughs> like, right. I want right, right. I'm still in the league, buddy. Yeah. I'm still like, I'm still an all star. <laughs> but I hear you on Allen Iverson. I mean, you're talking to a Boston kid and like somehow I like Allen Iverson is my favorite player, even though I hated the Sixers. And, yep. you know, and I just did somebody tell me the other day I saw posted like it's been 25 years since. Um, Allen did the step over, you know, um, in, uh, against LA. I was like, wow. Like it's, you know, it's like, feels like yesterday. I'm a lifelong Lakers fan. So I grew up loving Showtime Uh and I remember that moment and he was just a definition of cool. He was cool without trying to be cool. It was amazing. When we worked on this project a couple of years ago, shut up and dribble with LeBron. Um, it was interesting, literally everyone of that era, our age basically from jay-z to obviously every player they talked about alan iverson was the most culturally imp- lebron maverick carter all of them said it's alan who like you know changed the way everything we played on the court we dressed off the court we talked about ourselves um you know it was we embraced our you know cultural identity etc and, you know, I interviewed, you know, the late David Stern and he told some, he was like, tell me when the camera goes on. I'll tell you some, tell me when the camera goes off, then I'll really tell you some great Alan stories. And so, um, you know, just, yeah, just iconic, culturally defining. When you develop these friendships with these guys and girls, is there an expectation? And I know you can't say, hey, person X, we're going to make a project about you one day. But do you, as soon as you become friends with them, do you start molding a narrative in your head around like, like, let's call it a Steph Curry, where you're like, in 10 years, I would love to tell this story about Steph Curry. Like, is, is that the way your mind works? 
A little bit. I mean, I think that, like, you know, obviously the interesting thing with NBA players, NFL players, um, Serena Williams, et cetera, is like, there's a public narrative. You know, there's like, we already kind of think we know this, right? Because they're like on TV every day or on social media every day, or I follow them and I feel like I know them. I already have some perception of them. And then I think, yeah, once you start to meet them and you get to know them and you get to see their family, you start like, oh, that's interesting because I totally wouldn't have thought that. Or, you know, you start to feel this gulf between like the public perception and then the private intimate thing. And I think so much of storytelling, like when we do these things, we use the media narrative so much, like those voices, you know, that are constantly coming, you know, uh, on sports radio or ESPN or all the punditry, et cetera, all the now podcasts and stuff. So yeah, I think like a lot of storytelling just exists in that friction between like the public and private narrative. And you start to like notice those things and catalog those things for sure. Even though you grew up around the likes of Michael Jackson and we're talking the fame of fame, the, the apex of fame, but do you ever kind of take a step back as a middle-aged man right now and think to yourself, holy shit, look at the people I get to associate with and work with. Yeah, for sure. I still, you know, people ask me all the time, like, oh, so do you still like enjoy like, you know, sports? Like, can you, I'm like, yeah, like I will be watching. You know, I don't even care. Like I'm not a Clippers fan, but I'll be watching tonight. Like, you know, the the Clippers and and uh, and uh, the Jazz. Like, I don't even really like the Jazz, but like, I love watching, you know, I love sports. I Because to me, sports are mythic and sports are about human potential. And, you know, I, I do separate, like I've gotten to know a lot of these athletes. And so like, you know, I have a 13 year old son. I'm like, hey, absolutely. You should admire like the commitment that goes into like, you know, achieving this sort of greatness and elite performance, but you don't know these people and you got to be careful about that also. And they're human beings and they make mistakes and they do things that aren't great. And um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I've been able to sort of like straddle that and still very much like enjoy and, and just like, you know, I just, I love competition. I love um, just like, watching it and and pulling it apart and understanding it so yeah i think you know i did i had a moment this is going back a few years now i mean you know like my relationship with tom has really you know gotten a lot closer but i remember at the time i was working on tom versus time with him and it really followed him across the whole season so like it was pretty you know close to him and i was driving with him to the afc championship and i kind of like i never i told him i'm like dude i never do this but I have to do this because like, 12 year old Gotham cannot believe she's riding to the AFC championship, you know, Patriots and Tom Brady. So we're going to take a selfie. And, like, and, you know, he was cool about it too. Cause I think that's, and that's one of the things I've been lucky with like Tom and Steph in particular is like, they realize that like Tom's the guy who like grew up watching, you know, Joe Montana and Steve Young and dreaming of this and he doesn't take it for granted he's kind of the guy who's like can you believe this like is happening um and and so i think there's a humility there um steph is the same way i mean he grew up like you know with his dad del curry and like dreaming of doing that and then it happened and you know and his brother's in the league and his brother-in-law's in the league <laughs> stuff and he's like can you believe this is happening and so i think you know i've, I've also like seen that and felt that so cool 
So one of the reasons that I started the show Gotham was to talk to successful people like you about how you achieve your success. So my question to you, Gotham Chopra, what do you do to continue to elevate in your own life? Great question. Um, look, I, I think I, what we were just talking about, I, I tried <laughs> just humility. Like, I, I love this. I love this and I get to do it for, and so those little things that, you know, come up and that are annoying and exhausting and everything, I remind myself, you know, like, yeah, but I, I dreamt of this, you know, and I get to do it for a living now. And so I think that healthy humility is really good. I also think like I try to find life away from work. You know, I've become a lot healthier, I'd say, just in my lifestyle, emotionally, physically, certainly mentally. And so I find balance, you know, and I, I think that's really important. Um, I've, I've definitely noticed like, oh, like Don Brady, like how does he do this? How is he continuing to do this? It's not just like he's studying film all the time or doing pliability. It's he's found balance. He's good about his diet. He's good about his sleep. He's good about, and the more, you know, the older you get, the more you realize like how important that is. And so I've really sort of, you know, sort of found a way to, to make that a part of my, my practice or my lifestyle. Dude, this has been awesome. Congratulations on the Emmy nomination. Lost in Sports is out. Simone Biles right behind it. And I love what you, Strahan and Brady, have built with Religion and Sports. Just awesome. Religion and Sports is just awesome in my mind. I love what you guys are doing with it. I appreciate that so much. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and, and thanks for doing it. Awesome, man. Congrats on everything. Thank you so much, Gotham. All right. Nice Take care, you. man. All right, folks, that was, as mentioned, Gotham Chopra. I love this guy. Religion of Sports, Tom Brady Strahan. These guys are just taking over the world. Good for them. Good for you guys. But uh, Lost in Sports, great podcast. Ben Baskin, great job with this. I love listening to all these episodes, and I think everyone will too. Our final guest, last but not least, certainly not least, on the totem pole of famous chefs, this man's on the Mount Rushmore arguably on the Mount Rushmore. That's all. No big deal. But we're talking Wolfgang Puck. I mean, Wolfgang freaking Puck is on the show. His new documentary is called Wolfgang. It's on Disney+. Plus. I absolutely adored this interview. Just getting into the world of one of the most famous chefs and his story and how he made it and becoming friends with every A-lister in Tinseltown, becoming the culinary mind behind the Oscars. How cool is that? We dig into it all. Enjoy. Here he is, Wolfgang Puck. All right. It is a wonderful day on the Endless Hustle as I am joined by the one, the only, one of the most famous chefs of all time, restauranters, you name it, he's done it, Chef Wolfgang Puck. Wolfgang, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Good to talk to you. So after all these years, you can finally say you made it. You have a movie. That's that's the moment. You've made it. <laughs> you know, I have never made it. This would be a great thing for young people to watch, for young kids growing up who have advers uh, adversity and uh, uh, also who thinks they can make it. But, you know, if you follow your dreams, you actually can go somewhere. And I think that's what I did in a way. I had a very tough beginning. You know, my stepfather was uh, out of control, totally abusive mentally and physically to me 
and my sister, but you know, if you hang in there, something good will happen. Chef, can you believe it? After all these years, all the awards, all the recognition, you name it, as I've mentioned, you've done it. When you look back on this journey, what strikes you? What really hangs in the emotional air for you? You know, when I saw the movie the first time, and by the way, David Garb did a great job directing and producing it. And when I saw it the first time at the Tribeca Film Festival, like all put together with the music, and I think it was difficult for me almost to relieve the past uh, with, uh, in my home with my stepfather and have all these things going through me. I remember holding the hand of my wife, Galila, and I was like shaking. I said, Jesus Christ, this is still bad, you know? But mostly now I said, you know, I want my children to see, I want other young people to see that if you have problems, if you have adverse, adverse things going on in your life, you can overcome it. You just have to continue and not take no for an answer. One of the things that I admire so much about you, and you've obviously touched on it already, you go through this incredibly difficult and underwhelming childhood in Austria. You then come to America and you're able to essentially launch your dreams. Obviously, Spago is really that first celebrity restaurant. It becomes the diamond of Hollywood. Everybody from Julia Roberts to Tom Hanks, every A-lister knows you, they're coming in. I want to rewind the clock back to that moment. When did Spago start taking off? And when did you realize that you were the king of Hollywood of the culinary scene? You no, know, it was funny because it really started at Mamezon. And I don't know if you saw Patrick Deray, who was the main owner of Mamezon. I had a little part, like 5%. And one day I told him, you know, I think we should form a restaurant management group and we are we own it 50-50. And he looked at me and said, I always going to own 51%. So I looked at him and said, me too. But it was already at Mamezon that I met people like Orson Welles, like Billy Wilder or Swifty Lazar or Jack Lemon and John Collins. So I knew some people already. So when I left actually exactly 40 years ago, this month, uh, Maison to open Spago or to build Spago. And, you know, we had a terrible divorce with Patrick. It was like a friendly parting or anything. Uh, it was terrible. As a matter of fact, so bad, I didn't let him into Spago for the first 20 years, maybe. So when I left, uh, I had very little money. I did some cooking classes and everything. And then I opened Spago. So two weeks into the opening, all of a sudden, Billy Wilder calls me up and says, oh, I'm going to bring some friends for dinner. And I said, all right. I got all excited because Billy, I was such a big fan of his. And he's Austrian like me. And I remember he brought Gregory Peck, Sidney Poitier, and John Collins. Uh, and I don't know who else, but it was this table of mega stars. And all of a sudden, the writer, George Christie from The Hollywood Reporter, was also by accident there. And he used to come often afterwards. And he wrote this story that Spago is the new place in Hollywood. That's where all the stars go. That's where everybody goes. So it was really, really the beginning. And then, you know, it continued. All the Hollywood A-list I had to go. And he told everybody, you better make a reservation now. If not, you never get a table there. So it becomes this overnight success. I thought I'm going to open a little neighborhood restaurant. 
at the end, it was this crazy thing where I used to sit until one or two in the morning looking out the window and saying, how do I gonna manage that? Everybody wants to come and they just didn't take no for an answer. I, I remember uh, uh, friends of ours, I cannot name the name and they called up and said, okay, I'm gonna pay six people at eight o'clock tonight and they hung up the phone and I didn't have that telephone number or this thing, you know? So it was crazy and they showed up with six people and I said, oh no, where do I gonna put them? So they waited for a table, they wait, yelled at me and then somebody else had to wait because I gave them that table. It was really hard, but you know, it was so successful. And because the quality of the food and the service was so good, we survived the initial rush because a lot of these restaurants, they are very, very, very important at the beginning or they do very well for a year or two and then they fall off and nobody goes anymore. But Spargo continued and as a matter of fact, our best year was 2019. So after almost 40 years, we are still doing well and we are still in the picture. I think a big part of that chef is you. And I don't mean you as a chef, I mean you as a personality. And we see that in this film, you became a star yourself. You became not only friendly with these people, but they looked at you as a celebrity, even though they were the celebrity. Could you feel that change happening? Could you feel that when they were coming to Spago, it, you were their star at the moment? I never thought like that. I always loved what I do. I'm very passionate about food. I'm very passionate about hospitality. And that was really the most important part for me. I never thought of myself as a star. I never thought of myself being important. I really thought what is important is our guests that they leave with a great experience and they cannot wait to come back. Spago explodes. You then have to probably decide what's next. Do I open more restaurants? Do I open a hospitality group? Of course, the Oscars happen. When you're at that crossroads as an entrepreneur, what does that decision-making process look like for you as you start weighing what are the next steps of my expansion? You know, it was so interesting. When I was a kid, 19 years old, and I worked at Beaumanier next to Raymond Tullier, who was really my mentor. He was an amazing chef, restaurateur, painter, you name it. And he told me one day, he says, you know, my little guy, you know, your life is like you think you're on a train station. If you don't hop on the train, you're going to just always be on the train station. So you have to make a decision to hop on the right train, hopefully, and then you will go somewhere. And that's really is still in me. So when Spago became so successful, I got offers from everywhere to open Spago, here, there, God knows where. So then finally, I know I opened in Tokyo. We got these Japanese people who came over and said, oh, we want to open a Spago in Tokyo. Because remember, this was the first restaurant with an open kitchen where the chefs were on stage and the chefs were the stars, not the restaurant owner or the manager even though we are still important too, but that was almost like the coming out of the chef uh, profession. And for me, it was really so exciting because I could manage the restaurant from the kitchen. I could see everybody coming in. So it was really an interesting thing. But then I opened Spago in Tokyo in 1983, in um, April, I think so. And 
that too became so successful. And then I had somebody come up to me in Santa Monica here and says, oh, you should open Espago in Santa Monica. We really want you there and everything. And I said, you know, I'm so tired of uh, cooking uh, the same food in every restaurant. I want to open a Chinese restaurant just to get rid of them, really. I thought, if I'm going to tell them I'm going to open a Chinese restaurant, they're going to look at me and say, forget it. I find somebody else. Sure enough, they said, okay, I'm sure you're going to make good Chinese food. So why not? So they gave me the space and they became my partners until I bought them out. And so I opened Chinois. Again, the first restaurant if you, which did fusion food. So it was all new at that time. And we had an open kitchen. We had a kitchen counter where people used to come. I remember Mike always coming with Sean Connery and some other of his customers taking off the whole counter space. It was really, really exciting for me to cook for them. Who were some of the celebrities that left you awestruck, Chef? The people that would walk in these restaurants and you would just say to yourself, I'm this little Austrian boy cooking for this person. How did this shit happen? <laughs> well, you know, it was so interesting because like I remember, you know, the James Bond movie. So uh, Sean Connery was always one of my favorite actors and his personality in this movie was always great. And I remember... Julia Roberts, when she did her birthday party at Spago, and she was so beautiful. And I was just, oh my God, maybe I can go out with her. I was dreaming, probably. So there were a lot of things, but mostly because we have so many celebrities in uh, Los Angeles, you know, a lot of them live here. I was very impressed when the King of Sweden came, for example, with his wife, or when all kinds of presidents came from uh, Jimmy Carter to Bill uh, Clinton and so forth. So I think to me, they were the really the important people. The Hollywood people were not so important. There was one exception, which was Mike Ovitz. He is the, was at that time the biggest talent agent. He owned CAA and he was the king of Hollywood. So I think he really started the whole thing for me on television, you know? I wrote a cookbook in 85 and I didn't do TV before that, maybe some little local shows once in a while. And uh, when I signed a cookbook to his wife, my new cookbook to Judy, and he said, how come I don't know about that? Well, I said, Mr. Owens, you are a big uh, personality in Hollywood. How should you know about my little cookbook? He said, yeah, you, and you don't promote it. How are you going to sell it? And he went on and on and on. And I finally, uh, he said, why you don't do Good Morning America or the Today Show or something like that? And I said, well, my PR person tried, but they didn't want me on Good Morning America. They said, they had Julia Child. And he said, what? Are they crazy? He called up the next day, the president of ABC in New York. The guy comes out a week later. They have dinner at Spago together. And Ovitz made him sign on a piece of paper. I don't know if it was a menu or a napkin. Said Wolfgang going to go on Good Morning America whenever he wants. Those guys don't exist anymore. Those guys and girls, that's a different Hollywood than today. Take me back to that era because as a kid who grew up in the 80s, I remember that era. And then the 90s, we began to see the transformation. And then 2000s, we saw the social media age take hold. Yeah. But what was that 80s Hollywood? What was that era like? In the, and being around it through the restaurant world. You know, it was like the most amazing experience because we got all kinds of people from Hollywood. So you had the stars who like Gene Kelly and uh, Jimmy Stewart and Gregory Peck and Sidney Poitier and uh, John Collins and Elizabeth Taylor. 
they used to come to the restaurant. But then you had also like Madonna, who was starting out at that time. Uh, you had uh, Michael Jackson, you had Prince, you had Sean Penn and all these younger actors and actresses who used to come. So it was an interesting mix of picture because the young ones were in awe of seeing Swifty Lazar with Lou Wasserman and uh, all the famous studio heads or whatever. And then the older ones were still the kings. So it was an exciting experience for me. But also you, you saw all the famous people coming from New York, the rich people, if it's the Rockefeller or anybody like that, they, when they came to LA, they had to come to Spargo. When somebody from Germany came like a Baron Van Thyssen and one of the richest guys in Europe, he only wanted to go to Spago. So it was really, when Agnelli came, he only wanted to come to Spago. So you had this European quasi royalties, which still existed then, the big tycoons used to come. So it was a great mixture of people. And then we had writers. And what I was really proud of, a lot of artists. I loved Roy Lichtenstein. I loved uh, uh, Bob Rauschenberg. Andy Warhol used to come. He actually made my menu covers and my wine labels and everything. So it was so exciting. And I just got yesterday some pictures with me with Elswat Kelly and Bob Rauschenberg, Roy Lichtenstein and so forth. And I think for me, that was the most exciting part because I said, if I'm not a cook, I want to be an artist. I, I'm from Philadelphia originally. And there's a very famous French chef who I'm sure you're familiar with, Jeff George Perrier who was the king of Philadelphia for many years with Lebec Finn. And I interviewed when I was first starting out, I interviewed Perrier. And I remember he, talking to him and him expressing that it wasn't work to him, it was art. So when you talk about the artist mentality, do you still see it as art? Is it, even though you're a successful businessman, is it still a pure art form to you? I really believe it's an intersection of art and craft and technique. So you have to learn the technique. You have to do all that. You have to run it as a business. You have to have this repetition going on all the time. But it's a creative process to make things which were never maybe done before or change them which were never done before. So there is a big creative part of it, but it's also a craft mixed together because there are certain things you just have to do over and over again. I want to bring you to the Oscars. How well, does that? First, I'm going to ask you a question. You know, George was a very good friend of mine. I wonder how he is doing in Philadelphia because I had a few times dinner downstairs. He had Le Bar Lyonnais downstairs and we had a lot of fun there. I haven't seen him. So I've been in New York. I've been in New York for 10 years now. Oh. I haven't seen him in probably seven or eight, but if Center City, Lebec is closed, but yeah. he would have small bistros in and around Philadelphia. But yeah. every now and then when I'm in Philadelphia, there was always a Perrier sighting somewhere in Rittenhouse Square. Uh -huh. And for, you know, you, you talk about a small guy and not particularly this George Clooney looking type of guy, but his presence and his aura is if he's an A-list movie star, there really was no one like him in that city that I can ever remember, yeah. restaurateur or not. He was he was larger than life. Totally, and his restaurant was considered as one of the 
five top in the United States. But we had a big thing in common. We both worked at Beaumaniere in Provence, where Mr. Tullier, who really was my member, he was there before and came to Philadelphia. And then I came a few years later. So we both had a really good foundation. Let's talk about the Oscars. Okay. How does that begin? Is it a phone call that you get from the Academy that says, Chef Puck, we want you to do this? How does it all happen? Well, it really happened at Spargo before. Swifty Lazar used to do the Oscar party at Spargo every year. And only A-listers got invited. You know, it was really hard uh, uh, to get invited to. And uh, Swifty had his friends. And, uh, you know, that was more important to him. So... I remember somebody, uh, quite a few people used to come to me and says, oh, can you ask Swifty if he can invite me? Can you ask Swifty? And I was naive and I said, Swifty, uh, uh, can you invite so-and-so? They want to come to the party. He said, fuck him, I'm not going to invite him. So it was crazy. And here I had all the big stars used to come. So it was really exciting. And like the governor's born, nobody went to that. They all came as soon as the Oscar ceremony was over, they all came immediately to Spargo. We had three, 400 people out on the street. We had to close down the street and just for the limousine to arrive. And uh, then like around 93 or so, the Academy, uh, they asked me, why you don't do our dinner? We want to make it more festive and everything. And I still remember, so I said, okay, that might be a challenge to cook for 1,500 people. And so one day we did a test, a tasting at Spargo, at the old Spargo. And I said, okay, so we had like Arthur Hiller, you know, who was a famous director and uh, Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who were in the music business, did the songs for Barbara Streisand and maybe 10 other people from the Academy. And so I basically told them, I'm going to make you a menu because they had to have a, a party planner to the party planner said, you have to give them a taste of a fish or of meat or of this or that. So I went out, I said, I have to inform you only of one thing. And they said, yeah, what is it? I said, you know, I don't going to tell you how to make the movies or how to write a score for a movie. As long as you don't tell me what to cook, we'll have a happy party and a good party. And you know what? They were so happy because I gave them a menu and they all ate it. They said, oh, it's delicious. And I said, I know I can, that, I can do that menu for 1,500 people. And uh, we are doing it for 25 years now. So when that happens, obviously the Oscars, the biggest spectacle in the world, how does that transform your profile and create additional exposure for you and, and the business? Well, the Oscars is really a global event, you know, even more global maybe than the Super Bowl because everybody's interested in the movies, you know, in uh, certain places there is no American football, they don't care about that as much, you know, in certain places in Europe, they don't care as much, but they care about the movie stars. So I think it really gave us publicity all over the world, you know, we really, we really thought you know, that that helped us keep us in the limelight around the world, not just locally. So because we had television stations from Australia, from China, from Italy, you name them, like hundreds of them lined up. And uh, I did interviews after interviews, like uh, all day long, like for two days. So it was really an important part, I think, for us. So the people get to know us worldwide. And 
I remember I was down in Punta del Este in Uruguay on a beach. And we were walking. I had my pants on, scrumped up a little bit, and, and a shirt or whatever. And we were walking with a friend, with Alex. And then uh, all of a sudden, a woman comes up to me and said, oh my God, you're Wolfgang. I know you from the Oscars. And uh, then like 30 girls came up around me. Oh my God, can we take a picture? Can we do this? It was like crazy. I said, oh, here I am at the other end of the world and people know me from the Oscars. As this is all happening, Chef, the explosion of the culinary world on television is simultaneously occurring. The Food Network is becoming a mammoth enterprise. You see the, the rising of Mario Batali and Emeril Lagasse and the next wave of TV chefs. Were you cognizant of what was happening in terms of the, the culinary world and entertainment merging and becoming huge? You know, my passion was always the restaurant business. My passion was always serving our customers in the restaurant. Television was never really my first love. Where I said, I want to be on TV so badly. No, I just tried to do a little bit so that way we stay in the picture so people don't forget about us because I know it reached millions and millions of people. So it was a good thing. But for me, my restaurants were my priority. And, you know, you had chefs like Emeril or Bobby Flay and people like that. They became huge TV stars. Mario Patali became a huge TV stars. I wanted to be known as a great cook, a great restaurateur, not as a great TV personality. It's fascinating to hear that because it's the complete opposite end of the spectrum with most chefs. Yeah. Most chefs are more interested in being the star than running a good and successful restaurant. To you, it was really all about the craft. To me, it's for what I do, and I tell everybody, I don't want to be a bad actor. Like when they ask me to play in movies, if I like it or if I know the person really well, like Kelsey Grammer is a good friend of mine, or uh, Mr. Brooks, who did The Muse, he talked me into doing an appearance on The Muse and so forth, or uh, the Las Vegas show, you know, with Jimmy Khan, and I... I actually marveled at him because I thought the way he talked, it was like so easy. And I said, wow, you know, I thought, is he rehearsing or is that a take? And they said, oh, it's a take. I said, he's amazing. It felt so natural. He felt like so in his role. And I said, I could never do that like that. You know, you have to learn your craft. I learned my craft is cooking and I stick with that. Now, I like to do a little TV. I'm not saying I'm against it by any means. I think it is an important part. I think social media these days is very important. My son, uh, Byron, who is 26 years old and runs our newest restaurant called Meroir up on Sunset Boulevard at the Bandry Hotel, he is totally into social media. I don't use a computer to this day. So if I need something, if this uh, is over, our podcast is over, I will call Abigail and says, Abigail, turn off the computer. <laughs> One of the things that I loved about seeing this film, Chef, is at your age, most people are thinking about winding down, retiring, heading off into the sunset. You actually are working harder. You're still determined to continue to expand this empire. Where does this drive come from? You know, if you love what you do, I think you can do it. And I'm fortunate that I'm successful so that way I can still expand, open new restaurants. Like two and a half months ago, we opened Meroir and I'm so excited. My son, Byron, who is 26 years old, he's running the restaurant. 
We opened another one in Medi Mediterranean restaurant there called Ospero. So it's a new project. We built this big outside pavilion at Spago during the pandemic. So people can eat basically with the roof over their head, but the sites are open and people really enjoyed it. And I spent $350,000, $400,000 just to build this pavilion out on the street. Why? Because I want my customers have an experience. I don't want them to sit on the concrete floor where the tables wobble or whatever. I said, you know, if we do it, we have to do it right. Chef, you obviously touched on COVID and probably the greatest obstacle that any restaurant owner or anyone in the hospitality industry has ever faced just happened. When that was happening, in the moment, what type of pivoting had to occur? How were you and your group able to really process and handle the changes that needed to be made in order to keep the business sustainable? Well, you know, obviously at the beginning, the government gave us money, the PPP money, you know, pay all protection plan. So we could pay these employees, but that ran out by July or so last year. So at the beginning was easy. We could do a little takeout. We could make people work maybe three days a week or whatever they work. So we had a rolling going on of different groups working. So that was okay. Takeout did very well. Then we open up again, so people were happy to go out again. And then last fall, we closed down again. And that was really hard. And I said, okay, I'm just going to continue to do takeout. And we lost a lot of money over two months. It didn't work. But I already had ordered my big pavilion. So they were building it. It was how to finish it on time. Finally, end of February, we got the pavilion going. And uh, now I think people seem to really enjoy it and, you know, Unfortunately, or fortunately, we don't have any rain. We had barely any rain all winter long. Like a few years ago, we had a lot of rain. So that's why I built it. I said, I don't want people sitting outside or having their birthday party planned. And then it rains, I have to call them up. Sorry, you can have takeout, uh, we are closed. So we invested the money to serve our guests better. But I think it was the hardest time for everybody and especially for so many small restaurants, you know, some of them didn't even know how to get uh, uh, some money from the government. You know, the landlords didn't help them either. A lot of them had to close down and be out of business. And I think it's really a sad history in our business and the hospitality business because I don't know, 120 or 150,000 restaurants closed forever. So. That's really sickening in a way. Obviously, the big corporations going to survive, but the small family-owned restaurants, family-owned bars, whatever, unfortunately, didn't make it because they didn't have any reserve. And even before, if you were marginally successful already before the pandemic, you know, once that hit, it's basically doors closed. You're in the cemetery. We've obviously talked so much about your successes, but any entrepreneur knows there is no such thing as an overnight success. You have to put the grind in for years to become that overnight success. If you were to share a lesson, one lesson that as an entrepreneur that you would want people to understand, what is that great lesson? Well, to me, somehow, like, you know, we have restaurants in Las Vegas. I hate to gamble because I will lose the money on the table. I'm not good at counting cards or anything like that, especially if I have a few drinks. But there's an interesting thing within me that I like to take risks and I like to gamble in my business. 
Now I tried it out one time. I opened a brewery with a restaurant called Eureka and the brewery lost so much money that after two years we had to shut it down. It was really very difficult for me and uh, seeing a hundred employees in the restaurant, I had to lay them off because uh, the brewery put us so much in the red. So I learned that I should stay with my business and stay what I'm good at, what I think I can control. That if a chef or a manager leaves me, I can take over the job anytime. So to me, it's really an important part to stick to what you know best and then always think what can we change? How can we do it better? I think innovation is a big part in, your business, in our business. I think in uh, any business, really, when you think podcast didn't exist not too long ago, you know, and the same thing for me also, what is important is tradition. You know, we have people come to Chinois and eat our sizzling crispy catfish for 38 years. We have people come to Spago, even I put the Wiener Schnitzel on maybe uh, in the late 90s, so 20 years ago or more. People still come and says, I know I'm gonna go to Spago and I'm gonna eat the Wiener Schnitzel and the Kaiserschmarrn to have some Austrian food. And all of a sudden that took off like a brush fryer. Never before did I put Austrian dishes on the menu and now it has become so popular. I talk to many actors and one of my favorite questions is, what role were you up for that you either ended up passing on or not getting that you look back and think, oh my God, how would that have changed my career? I want to modify that question a little bit for you in that, was there an opportunity that you either passed on or just failed because you may have just not been ready for it that you think could have been a game changer for you? You know what would have been a game changer? Somebody who had a shoe store, a friend, a customer of ours said, Wolfgang, you should invest your money into Amazon. And I said, Amazon, what do you think? I'm buying books or whatever it is. I can go in the bookstore and buy my book, whatever. And they said, no, 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 that's the thing of the future. And you know what? This couple invested mainly all, all their savings, probably what they had. And now they sold their uh, shoe store. They have enough money. Now they are older than me. They traveled the world just by their investment into Amazon. And I said, Shit, I should have listened to them. Even if I would have invested $100,000 or $300,000, that would be a lot of money. A lot of money for my children to go to school, for us maybe to buy a summer home somewhere. And it's always good to have financial security. Chef, you have one meal to eat. It's your last meal. What is Chef Wolfgang Puck's last meal? And who's cooking it? You know... I cannot talk and converse with my food. Yes, I can see it, I can smell it, I may be able to talk to it, I might be able to enjoy it. But to me, a meal is sitting at the table with friends and family and have a great conversation. Now, it could be starting with a great bottle of champagne, maybe an older champagne, which I like, you know, maybe an older Krug champagne or uh, an older cristal or things like that, maybe a little bit of caviar, maybe have a pasta with truffles, or just have a beautiful grilled fish, keep it simple, and then some good desserts. I love sweets. So, but more important than anything is have a great conversation and have somebody with you who enjoys the food just as much as I do. You know, for me, that's the most important. I don't want to have my last meal by myself somewhere. I want to have my last meal with friends. And even if it's just 
a goulash or mina schnitzel with some good white wine and we laugh and we have a great time and a great experience, I think that would be my last meal. It wouldn't be in a three-star restaurant where you feel like you're in a temple or you're in a church where it's quiet, nobody makes any noise, nobody laughs. One of the reasons that I started the show, Chef Wolfgang, is because I wanted to talk to successful people like you about the keys and principles that help them find their success. So my question to you is, what do you do and what principles do you incorporate in your life to continue to elevate? Well, our business is all about the people. I have people with me for 30, 40 years. And because of the movie now, they saw my upbringing. They saw how I started. You know, even this morning, I was at the Bel Air Hotel and one waitress who is probably 50 years old comes up to me and says, Wolfgang, I saw your movie I feel like now I'm part of your family. Now I understand you so much better. I think I'm so proud of working with you because that movie meant so much to me where I saw you had this adversary uh, at the beginning and now you're successful, but you haven't changed. And I really believe that it's an important part. I'm here in the hospitality business. So is everybody else. And I lead by example, not because I want to, I have to, because I have the passion for it and I want to do it. And that's really had never changed in my life. You know, I was married a few times. I had the children, which are amazing, but my passion for food, my passion for the restaurant business has never changed. Did your children, as they were growing up, and you obviously are this famous chef, and they're in the restaurants and they're seeing you hobnobbing with the biggest stars in the world. Did they understand what was going on that Tom Hanks and Julia Roberts know who their dad is? You know, I think my family who came over from Austria, I remember my sister came with her, her two young boys that was in the eighties. And they came over and I remember Sly Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger were having dinner at uh, Spago. And then I told Arnold, you, you are Austrian. My family wants to take a picture with you. And they took a picture with him. And uh, they were so excited about seeing this Hollywood thing, which they only see in the movies. You know, if you'll go up in the mountains in Austria in a little village, you know, you don't dream about meeting Schwarzenegger. You don't dream about meeting a president or somebody famous. And I think now the whole thing has changed a lot, you know, because... People got used to it. And after the uh, uh, movie came out, my nephew, who is in his mid-30s, Lucas, he sent me the most beautiful note. And he says, you know, I know you worked really hard. I know this is uh, not an overnight success. But he said, you know, we are so proud of you as a family because you made the sunshine on all of us. Chef, this has been an absolute pleasure. And if you need anyone to join you for that last meal and nobody's picking up the phone, give me a call anytime. Uh, totally, totally. I think we can have a good conversation and have some great drinks and maybe end it with some good tequila. I love it. Chef, this has been an absolute pleasure. You are an icon and congratulations on being able to bring this wonderful story and this inspirational life to, to millions of people. Thank you. I hope it inspires some young people to follow my footsteps and say, you know what? If Wolf can do it, I can do it. I love it. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. 
All right, folks, that was, of course, culinary icon Wolfgang Puck. Make sure to check out Wolfgang on Disney Plus, a beautiful documentary about a beautiful life, a life well-lived. And as you could hear or see from this interview, he is such a likable, down-to-earth, humble guy who's all about the craft. Those are the people I appreciate the most. So thank you, Wolfgang, for a wonderful interview. And next time I'm in LA, don't think I'm not taking you up on uh, popping into Spago. Let's comp me a meal. I'm, I'm all about free. Free is my favorite flavor. I sound like such a beggar. But hey, Spago's expensive. It ain't cheap. Wolfgang, thanks for a fantastic interview. That's it for episode 86 of Bro Bible's Endless Hustle. Thank you, as always, for listening, watching, supporting, subscribe, rate. You know the deal. Just show us you love us. Follow us on social media. Endless Hustle is on Twitter at Endless Double Underscore Hustle. On Instagram at Endless Hustle Pod. Me personally, I am at Arthur Cade on Twitter. At it's me, Arthur Cade on Instagram. I literally had a brain fart there, guys. I was like, where am I going next? My own social media. We are back next week with another loaded week of guests. Keep endlessly hustling, guys. We're going to try to keep bringing you the best guests, the most informative chats. We love sharing this with you guys. And this is my baby. This is my passion. So I want to keep doing this for you guys. So show us you love us. We'll see you next Tuesday. Have a great weekend.